0: We're going to continue our series on stewardship today, and we're going to highlight the passage that we spoke on last week, which is Deuteronomy 29, 29. In fact, that is going to be the contextual passage for the entire series. And then we're going to jump to John chapter 1, verses 35 through 39, where Jesus and John have an interaction that impacts the disciples of John. So turn with me over to the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 29, verse 29. Moses is speaking, Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. And he says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we might observe all the words of this law. John chapter 1, verse 35 through 39. Again, The next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus, verse 38. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, verse 39, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour." Lord, help us as we study. Moses says in Deuteronomy 29, 29, it's important for you to understand the distinctions between what God reveals and what he conceals. That which he conceals is not our responsibility. We can't come to know it if he's hiding it, but if he reveals it, then it's our responsibility to do something with that which he reveals. It becomes ours now. It belongs to us. It becomes our stewardship to us and to our children, our sons, that we might observe the words of the law so that we might obey him. So whatever God reveals, he reveals that we might obey him better. Revelation precedes responsibility. And there is always responsibility where there is revelation. For those of you who have a very long to-do list, that might seem a little heavy for you. But remember, Jesus said, the the to-do list that I give you is neither burdensome nor heavy. It's not overly taxing to you. He said, my yoke is easy and my, burden's, my burden is light. And so it is a burden and there is a yoke. Make no mistake about that. I was talking with somebody the other day who was just commenting on how difficult it was to, to live the Christian life. And they didn't know whether they wanted to, to do it or not because they didn't want a half step in it. And somehow they thought they were making a virtuous decision by saying, I don't want to compromise. So you'd rather do all evil. I'm just trying to hear what you're saying. You'd rather do everything bad than possibly doing some good. And you think that's a virtuous decision? Now, the goal is not to be hypocritical. We don't want anybody standing on the fence. Got that. But remember, doing something better is always better than bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's never a bad time to do something better. The goal is to get you to do it all right. But if better comes, take better. And he was saying how difficult it was. I said, well, you're right. It is hard. It's hard. But I like this version of hard better than the hard I used to live without Jesus. Well. That, that, that was a whole new definition of heart. That was dealing with guilt every day of my life, trying to figure out how do I cover up one lie with another lie, and then dealing with the consequences of my own misdeeds on a regular basis, feeling the condemnation for me not living right, knowing that I should live, live right, and, and, and all the things that come from just continually hurting people because sin is selfish. It's always about you. Every once in a while, you might have a glimmer of hope where you peek out and be altruistic. But that is not the norm. The norm is, I need, I want, I, I have to have, give it to me. And that necessarily hurts people. That's hard. It's hard to live, and it's, it's doubly hard to recover from. This hard? This hard Brings good fruit to your life. Yes, sir. This hard makes relationships work. This hard, you can enjoy. You can enjoy this hard. The other hard, you can't enjoy. It doesn't yield good fruit at all. I told him, Yeah, it's hard. I'll take this hard over that hard. You just choose which hard you want. Jesus said, My yoke is easy and my burden is light. The responsibility he gives us is that which allows us the privilege of living at the highest possible level and enjoying life the way he intended it to be lived by humanity. Therefore, it is always the most, the most profitable and, and the, the, the issues regarding consequences and difficulties work out better. I'm not saying you're going to have less difficulty. But the issues that, that, that stem from the difficulty and the con- consequences of living a life that is fully right seem to work out to your benefit rather than to your detriment. There are very, very few consequences that come from, from your sin that ever work out for your help. It always makes you feel worse, but somehow or another, when you're doing the will of God and you make a mistake, he could even make that mistake seem as if it was in the plan to catapult you to the next wonderful adventure. I don't know how he does that, but he does that. He does that. But what he reveals, he, he requires us to steward. It belongs to us that we might obey him that we might understand what he requires for us to be in compliance to his will. Well, here we have this circumstance with John the Baptist. Now, John the Baptist was the the minister before Christ. They were in the same generation, but, but John started his ministry probably six months to a year prior. And his job was to prepare the way of the Lord, meaning to prepare the way for Christ. He was the plow, and Jesus was the sower. So John would come in with his ministry, and he would pull up all the rocks and the roots and the things that would be impediments to the seed gaining good root in the soil. And Jesus would come and then plant. Now, even in Jesus' day, when he did ministry, it was hard. People didn't receive what he had to say, but it would have been harder had not John preceded him. John was an amazing minister. John and Jesus were relatives. And that Elizabeth, John's mama, was a cousin of Mary, Jesus' mama. And when Mary got pregnant, the angel told her, who had told her she was going to have this child, that without a man's help, told her that your relative Elizabeth is in her sixth month. That was a clue for Mary to say, I'm not going to get any real encouragement from anybody else in my neighborhood here because when I tell them I'm pregnant and that being engaged, but the daddy is not my fiance, they're not going to believe that God did this. So I need some help. So the angel told her, there's this woman down the street who's your relative, and and she's in her sixth month, and she, who was barren, is now fruitful. So she went to see her, realizing that the angel told her that for a reason. It wasn't just for information. So Mary shows up at Elizabeth's door. As soon as Mary's voice says, hey, Elizabeth begins to prophesy, says the baby leapt in her womb and said, oh, how has it that the mother of my Lord has come to me? That's all Mary said was, hey, (laughs) how did she know she was pregnant? One, and two, carrying the Son of God. All of a sudden, Elizabeth became a prophetess, and Mary walked in the door, and she said, you know? And then all of a sudden, she begins to prophesy, and they have church. Right there, right there. So you know that the boys grew up together, understanding their destinies. Probably Jesus, understanding John's more than John's, understood Jesus because Jesus had all this information and <laughs> Jesus had just an, an unimpeded pipeline of revelation from the Father. John was like us. <laughs> he had to come by it by difficulty <laughs> and through working it and situations. And what does that mean to get in the Bible? <laughs> Jesus had it just as a pure stream. And, and, and so John knew he was to precede Christ in ministry and prepare the way. And Jesus knew, to, knew John was supposed to do the same. And so everybody was in sync for the most part. But I, I don't know that John knew everything about who Jesus was because it says that when Jesus appeared on the horizon, meaning right there at the ministry scene when John was doing his ministry at the River Jordan, John proclaims, I did not recognize him when he showed up. Now, he didn't mean he didn't know who he was. It's just that he didn't know who he was. I mean, he, he, he knew him, but, but he didn't know him. And all of a sudden, that prophet thing he kicked into, because John was a prophet. He was a prophet like Elijah or Elisha or Isaiah or Jeremiah. He was a prophet. That prophetic thing kicked in, and God spoke to him. He said, oh, my goodness, you're him. I mean, I, I, I remember what mama said, but I didn't understand what mama said. You're, I get, I understand. When we were playing Egyptians and Israelites, I realized why I had to be the Egyptian now. I got it. I, it all hit me now. I got it. <laughs> so there was this interaction between the two. And, and, and John, John was the minister of the day. He was Extraordinary. Extraordinary. He was so extraordinary that everybody asked him, are you the Messiah? You know, you got, to, you got to be pretty amazing for people to confuse you with God. You got to be pretty amazing. That's how great he was. But they had reason to confuse him for that, not only in, in that he was effective in ministry, but everybody knew this was about the time. When the Messiah should appear, not because they had read their Bible so much, but because the Magi had come 30 years earlier to Jerusalem looking for this one that the star had said would be born, that was king of the Jews. And when they came to Jerusalem, they thought he was, obviously if he's king, he's going to be born in the capital city. They thought that he would be born there, though he was born in Bethlehem. The star disappeared so that the Magi would let all the Jewish people know their king had been born. They didn't even know it. It was almost two years after he'd been born. So the people understood that, that this Messiah had been born, and so they were looking for him to come, and right about the age of 30 is when ministry began to be matured in people whereby everybody recognized that they are on their own now. They don't need any tutelage anymore. They can now start their own. It had been about 30 years since Christ had been born. You follow me? So they all looked at John and said, are you the one? Now, John hadn't been announced by a star, but he was powerful. And they didn't know where the one was who had been announced by the star. And they looked at him and said, you got to be him. And John said, you think I'm all that? You think I'm all that? The one who's coming after me is mightier than I. And I am so, he is so great that I am not even able to untie his sandals. That doesn't mean much for us. But back then, everybody wore sandals. There were no paved streets. They didn't have asphalt, no sidewalks. Everybody walked on dirt. So when you walked in a given day, your feet were filthy when you walked in the house. The lowest servant in the house was required to take the sandals off the guests or the people that resided in the home and wash their feet before they stepped in mama's kitchen. You with me? And they did not sit at tables. They reclined at tables when they ate. So they, they lied down on what would be a chaise lounge, if you will, at a 45-degree angle. There was a communal table in the middle, and then that's how they would eat. Well, their feet would be on the furniture. So mama wouldn't want your feet to be on furniture, furniture, you know, filthy. The lowest servant in the house would wash everybody's feet when they came into the house. John said, you think I'm great? That dude is coming after me? I am not even able... I'm not qualified to wash his feet. I can't untie his sandals. That's how great he is. John prepared this ministry for Christ. Plowed, plowed. He was so effective at what he did that people were coming from, from all over the place in the wilderness to hear him. Now, the wilderness is not the ideal place to set a ministry. Not if you want people to show up. It's hard enough to get you here in February when it's heated on the inside. We're talking about a field out of the wilderness. There's no McDonald's. You got to walk another three miles to get lunch. Are you kidding me? This man was so effective that people would come out in droves. So effective was he that multitudes came out to such a degree that the, 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 the army was concerned about his influence over the people because those people were being dominated by Rome. And when you had a crowd, you needed a permit, if you will. Just like today, you, you get a crowd, you, you can't just show up on the mall with 100,000 folk. You got to have a permit. So there had to be, uh, there had to be rules and, and permission given. And John was just out here hollering at folk. So the military showed up. He said, what are y'all here for? Well, what do we need to do? He said, stop stealing and don't, pe- don't oppress people no more. Then the religious leaders showed up because all their people weren't coming to church no more. And, they, and he said, he, oh, he... Who, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Why are you here? Uh, we just, you know, are you the one? No. Bye. <laughs> I mean, John captured the intention. He was the first prophet since Malachi. 500 years. Everybody was wondering, are you the one? And then Jesus comes. <laughs> and when he comes... John sees him and says, dude, I know I've done this, and this is my job to baptize folk, but I need to be baptized by you. I, I, I can't dunk you. I can't do that. I mean, you like, this is to, to help people get a new start and to forgive their sin, and you don't need any of that. I need some of that. Mm. Baptize me. And Jesus said, no, 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 no! listen. This is, the, this is the mark of your ministry. And although I don't need the specifics of what baptism gives in its application, I need you to proclaim me as who I am so that I don't have to print my own business cards and proclaim myself king. So let us fulfill all righteousness. You baptize me. Here we have God Almighty submitting himself to a human minister amazing when he could have just said john you're done and been right to do so you're done give me your staff give me your people it's time for me to take over now he could have done that and been right nobody would have accused him of being wrong yet he submitted himself because he wanted to make sure that if he was proclaimed he was proclaimed in objectivity and that nobody would somehow accuse him of taking authority that was not his that the prophet of the day would proclaim the king just as Samuel did David. Yes. Just as Samuel did Saul. Just as every king who was legitimate had a prophet proclaimed. And that's why you read in, in the book of, of, of uh, kings, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, and you'll see over in the, the, the nation of Israel, which was the northern kingdom, no prophets proclaimed any kings. Every once in a while you had one come along, but it was mostly to kill the one who was before him. <laughs> it was a mess. I mean, Israel was a mess. A mess. Judah always did it by order. Did it by order. This king was pronounced by this prophet, this prophet, this prophet, this prophet. And so John baptizes Jesus. The heavens open up. The father speaks, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. A dove flows out of the sky, lands on Jesus and stays. What a moment, what a moment. And everybody realizes that Jesus, at least if you've got eyes to see and ears to hear, that Jesus is who everybody has been hoping for. And yet he submitted himself to a human agent for an institution he did not need. Who is this guy that brings us? To John 1, verse 35. Jesus was there with some disciples. It says specifically two, but we have no reason to believe that there weren't others, but these two marked the moment because they did something extraordinary in response to who Jesus was. It says that Jesus came walking by, and John watched him walk. And he said as a result of watching him walk, Behold, the Lamb of God. Is there anything about your walk that makes people proclaim something about God concerning you? Anything at all? See, what John had just experienced with respect to Christ, submitted himself to John's ministry, blew John away. And when he saw him walk the next day or the next time they were together, or maybe three or four times, we don't know exactly when this encounter occurred, but we know it was later, John, and I imagine it went something like this, wasn't choreographed, Jesus was just walking by, he was doing what he needed to do, going where he needed to go. wasn't coming to be rebaptized or join John's ministry. He was just going from point A to point B, and John happened to be with his disciples. He saw him, probably maybe hundred yards away. saw him walking. He said, "Come here, come here, come here. See it, see him. That dude there. He walks like a lamb. It's a lamb, of Almighty God. Anything about your life that walks like a lamb, willing to sacrifice yourself for the benefit of many?" The Lamb of God was the animal that would be given for every household during the time of Passover. And when the Egyptians were holding the Israelite slave, there was a last, there was a final plague that was coming through to, to, to exact punishment. And everybody who did not have blood of a lamb on the doorpost of their home, their firstborn died. But if you had blood on the doorpost, then the, the curse of death passed over your house. And Jesus was the Lamb of God that would be slain for all mankind that would allow the curse of death to pass over us. John proclaimed him. It was the first time anybody did so. It It was a thus says the Lord prophetic moment. But it came as a result of how he walked. It's not inseparable from how he walked. Is there anything about how you walk that makes people say stuff about you that distinguishes you from the world? Do you have to tell them you're a Christian for them to know? Or can they say, you are amazing. You bring me cookies, and it ain't even my birthday. You cook me dinner for my family, and nobody died, nor is anybody sick. Who are you, and why do you do that? Is there anything about your walk that makes people say, that's a Christian right there. That's a lamb. They walk like a lamb. I was a senior in high school, and it was senior day in football. I played football. And senior day, they'd have the fathers come out with the sons, and the fathers would walk from the goalposts all the way to the 50-yard line. When they got to the 50, they pronounced pronounce who the father was, and then the son was to go out from the sideline and meet the dad at the 50, and then walk back to the sideline. So my dad walked out from the goalposts all the way to the 50, got to the 50, announced who he was. I came out to meet him. We walked back. It was a good moment for seniors. I had a bunch of kids come to me afterwards and say, I knew that was your dad before they ever said so. I said, how'd you know? He said, you walk just like him. Anybody tell who your daddy is by the way you walk? Anybody tell that your daddy is Father God by the way you walk? Can anybody tell? John watched Jesus walk changed his life behold the Lamb of God well not only was it a wonderful proclamation but the disciples heard it but they had to hear it in such a way that they were ready to respond because I don't believe that John woke up that morning with his disciples saying okay today We're going to be out here together, and Jesus is going to pass by at about 75 yards. We're not going to go say hello, but I'm going to proclaim, behold the Lamb of God. When you hear that, then you leave me and follow him. I just don't think it worked out that morning like that. I think this was all spontaneous, which meant that these two disciples, one of whom was Andrew, that was the brother of Peter, would have had to come with hungry ears. Meaning they would have had to come saying, I'm looking for you to do something today, God. I'm ready to obey whatever you say I want to do. What what you tell me, where you tell me to go, I'll go. I'm your boy today. I'm just ready. I'm anticipating that you're about to speak to me in an amazing way. And I want you to know, I am ready to obey. Because as soon as John said that, what did these two boys do? They left whatever they were doing and went and followed Jesus. When you come into the house, you've got to come hungry. If you come full, eh, you'll get maybe ten percent of my message. If you come hungry, you'll be sitting there saying, "Don't stop." And it's not because I'm not good of a preacher. It's just because you're hungry. You want the word of God, and you just can't get enough of it. They were hungry. And it's important that you hear correctly. And the the degree to which you are hungry will help you hear right. Because even though you are H-E-R-E, you need to be one who is not only H-E-R-E, but H-E-A-R. One who hears well. And if you don't hear well, then you won't follow well. They heard something. Behold the Lamb of God. And they basically said, bye, John. Bye, bye. I love you. Listen, you were great, I, but you, I got to go. I, I, got, I, I got to go. And you know what John said? Please do. And that's why Jesus said of John, no one who has been born of women is greater than him. Amen. <laughs> some pretty, pretty serious folk been born. <laughs> Moses. David Elijah I mean some fellows that didn't even die (laughs) they didn't even die they just kind of went to heaven those kind of people (laughs) and they came back in fellowship with Jesus I mean some serious folk and Jesus said when they were looking for Elijah to return, meaning Malachi said in the, before the great and terrible day of the Lord, I'm sending the prophet Elijah. And he will restore the hearts of, of fathers to children and children to fathers. And so everybody was looking for Elijah. Now, that doesn't mean that somehow the, that the God endorsed reincarnation. No, doesn't do that. What he was saying is the spirit and ministry of Elijah will be manifested in somebody else. And the, and the disciples were looking for that fella. And Jesus said, if you're looking for Elijah, it was John. It was him. Because nobody who has been born of women is greater than he. Nobody. And it's it's not because John was just a competent minister. It's because he he did the equivalent of building a church of 75,000 people. When he was a fabulous communicator in his prime and said, Jesus, I built it for you. I'm going to go back to farming. I'm going to do something else now. Here, take it. Who builds a multi-billion dollar company to give it away? Who builds a successful ministry to let somebody else enjoy the fruit of it? Who does that except except somebody who has been with God in a way like most aren't? Are those born of women? Nobody better. An amazing man. The disciples came hungry, and so they heard something. Lamb of God, whoo, we got to go. So they start, they start hoofing it. They're walking. It says they followed. When you hear right, you will follow. And I beg you, don't just come to church to hear. Come to church to obey. Come hungry. That you might change your life tomorrow and that church does not end when we finish here. That the word continues to work in your life after you leave here. They follow. And it doesn't just say he followed, because there were two disciples. So it, it's, it's not that one followed the other. They followed together. Is there anybody you're, you're following with? Anybody you're, you're close to? Anybody you have a relationship with whom you're walking that allows you the privilege of having second thoughts regarding having a fallout with them because they know too much information? and they could destroy you on Facebook. They could mess you up on Twitter. You have to have a second thought because you've shared all your junk with them. Every sin you committed, they prayed for you for stuff. Y'all been in the trenches together. and, And it makes you have a second thought about falling out with somebody, see? I have so many people like that. Not just one. I've been walking with folk for a long, long time. My buddy Chris here, 30 years, 84, 30 years. There are people in this church with whom I've walked for 30 years. Pastor Duke, 18, Pastor Jim, 16. God has blessed me with some relationships of longevity, and it's not because we've always just got along. I've given Christopher for more than enough opportunity to say, I'm going to find another pastor. Yes. I've said some things that he had to say, do I... Do I really need to follow that? And because he finally swallowed, God did some marvelous things with him, amazing things with him. I've had some people that have offended me, and I think, do I need to hang with this? Do I need this? Do I really, really need this? I can probably find some other people who would like me better, (laughs) treat me better. I said, no, 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 no. Because if I go find other people, then sooner or later I'm gonna probably wind up at this intersection again. And then I'm gonna to have to redecide do I want to stay with this person or find another people? And that's the way most of Christianity is. They just keep recycling relationships. They go round and round, get rid of this one, then go into another one, and get rid of that one and go into another one, get rid of that one, and go into another one. They don't stay. And Jesus said, one of the marks that people would know that you are his is how much you're committed to one another. Oh, I know it says, they will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. But we translate love as feeling. We don't translate it as commitment. To God, love means unconditional commitment to someone else's well-being. And our relationships are too often conditional. I've just decided to make mine non-conditional. I'm going to love you regardless. Hurt me all, all you want, but you can't make me leave can't make me leave now people have left me but I not them I decided if I'm gonna follow Jesus I'm gonna walk with somebody when I do it now they didn't want to invade Jesus personal space because he hadn't invited them to come but they wanted to stay close enough that they didn't lose him and so they followed at an awkward distance (laughs) and so you know awkward enough to where Jesus said may I help you do y'all, what do y'all want? <laughs> Literally, what are you looking for? Whom do you seek? What do you seek? And as we follow him, these are the questions he asks us. What are your motives? Why are you following me? Our religious response is because I love you, Lord, and you gave your life for me, and there's nobody like you, and Hallelujah. <laughs> Isn't that what we say? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? It's gorgeous. But wait till he doesn't endorse your dream. Wait till the plans that you had that you thought were his, he says, nope. And you spent like five years on them. But that investment that you really believed was his his, 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 his idea, his plan, this falls through. That man, that woman that you thought was supposed to be a fabulous spouse turns out to be not so fabulous after you said I do. Those children that just don't do what you thought they were supposed to do. That job that didn't work out the way you wanted. You prayed for, you got it, now you got it, now you don't want it. All these things that just don't work the way you thought, he doesn't fulfill your expectations. What happens? When he doesn't endorse your dreams. Oh, well, that's where the rubber meets the road. That's when people start saying, I ain't doing this Christianity no more. God didn't answer my prayer. He didn't endorse my stuff. I followed him. I started, I even tithe, and shoot, I wind up in this situation. you kidding me. This just ain't right. Just ain't right. David said this. If I have to walk through a valley that is full of impending death, I ain't leaving them. I will not fear. I'm not going to be dismayed because I know one thing. He is still with me. He may not feel like it, but he's still with me. The death of a dream, the death of a relationship, the death of a business, the death of an idea. We live in the environment where things die all the time. What do you do? When the thing you love dies, can you still walk with him? David says, though I have to walk through this moment, I realize he is still with me. And his rod and his staff, they comfort me. Can you find comfort? Can you find him in the midst of your difficulty? Why are you following me? What do you seek? Oh, they give a good answer. They said, we want to know where you're staying. They were just up front. We're coming to hang with you. That's all we're looking for. We want to know your address because we're going to be with you. And Jesus was impressed. Great. Come on. They were looking for the right thing. They had the right motives. And Jesus invites them. He says, come and be with me. And then they have a beautiful response at his invitation. It says that they stay. People come because they need help. And I, I realize all of, most of us, 99.9% of us, come to Jesus because we were in trouble. That's why we came to Jesus. I was down on my luck. I made a stupid mistake. I needed God to deliver me. I was in trouble. Oh, God, and he helped me. Most folk do not come to Jesus after they've found the greatest success of their life. They just don't. They're pretty self-sustaining, they think. And so when we, when we follow him, our motives sometimes are suspect, but it's only when the difficulty comes do we find out exactly why we are following. God knows from the beginning, but he allows us the privilege of not endorsing our dreams so that we will know. And when we respond correctly, after he has whittled us down to nothing, where all that's left is him, Where we don't care about the significance that comes from the fulfillment of a dream or the resources, the financial gain, the plus, whatever it is at the the end of the rainbow. We don't care about that anymore. Once we've come to the point where it's only about him, he says, "Now I can give you all the stuff. It's beautiful what he does. And and when when he does that with me, I say, I don't want it no more, though, Lord. That's good. That's exactly why I'm giving it to you. They respond beautifully, and they say, we want to find out where you are. And then it says they stay. I beg you, now that you're in this thing, stay. Stay. Don't let a disappointment cause you to to find some other thing to do other than God. Don't let a false, an unfulfilled expectation draw you away from his presence. Have some staying power. When you say yes, let your yes be yes. When you proclaim him as your Lord, don't unseat him from the throne. When he he requires you to make decisions that you don't want to make, do it anyway. And stay. Do not depart from him. says that they stayed. This is one of the most beautiful pictures John John didn't write this just to, to give a narrative so that we would have good history he wrote it so that people could gain something from it about how to best live when Jesus is revealed to us in all of his redemptive benefit behold the Lamb of God this is how a disciple responds they don't just look at the benefit and say well thank you Lord I'm going to heaven they hear They follow. They do it because they want to be with them, and they stay. May that be your story as well as these disciples. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking for your grace and mercy. Help us to live the way we should every day.